Welcome to the Ladies of Life site. We're ladies simply navigating the challenges and triumphs of this modern culture as moms, wives, sisters, and daughters. Join us each week as we discuss the raw questions and situations that we face through the lens of faith and freedom. So grab your cup of coffee, tea, or beverage of choice, and let's dive into this week's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ladies of LifeSight. I'm Lisa Stover, and I'm your host for this week's episode. Over the course of a few episodes leading up to this one, we have discussed the pro-life position from a variety of angles in light of the Texas heartbeat law and the Mississippi case that's about to be heard by the Supreme Court. Abortion as we know it in the United States could quite possibly change here over the next year. We are truly at a pivotal moment in history when it comes to abortion. So in light of this, we have been discussing the overarching questions on what will happen if and when Roe is overturned. We interviewed Joseph Backholm a few episodes ago as he broke down the Texas heartbeat law for us, what it says, what it does, and the implications of this law. Joseph made the point that if and when Roe is overturned, we're going to have an incredible need placed on pregnancy centers and on our communities to help abortion-minded women in a greater way. To follow that up, we interviewed Bryce Asberg, the director of a pregnancy resource center, to talk about what a pregnancy resource center is, how you can get involved, the importance of educating young people on the resources that exist, and he also even touched on the role of men in the pro-life movement. Then we talked to Dr. Michael New. He gave a lot of encouragement on the pro-life progress of the pro-life movement as a whole. He broke down the statistics and the data surrounding abortion numbers, what they mean for pro-lifers. Spoiler alert, the numbers show that we are winning and that pro-life efforts over the years have not been for nothing. If you haven't had a chance to listen to all three of these episodes, I highly encourage you to do so. So after you listen to this one all the way through, hop back to go and listen to those because they are such great jam-packed episodes with lots of great information and insight. They do set the groundwork for today's episode as we take a deep dive into the conversation surrounding abortion and specifically some of the arguments that you might be hearing right now from abortion advocates. So today I'm joined by Seth Gruber. Seth is a professional public speaker who is focused on equipping Christians and pro-life advocates to make a gracious, winsome, and persuasive case of their pro-life beliefs in the public square. His approach, while not shying away from the moral question of abortion, focuses on giving you the tools that you need to effectively and lovingly engage your coworkers, friends, and family members on the issue of abortion. So in today's episode, we talk pro-life apologetics, how to answer the tough questions on abortion when it comes to the case of rape, harm to the mother's health, bodily autonomy, and he even addresses the Shout Your Abortion campaign. Seth goes into great detail explaining the big picture as he addresses the underlying current of sin in our world that has allowed abortion to exist for almost 50 years. Seth makes a very strong case for abortion being the sacrament of the religion of the secular progressivism. You'll want to listen to this one all the way through, especially for Christians today. I highly recommend you listen because he has such a great call to action for all of us to take a stand, to get off the sidelines. It's a jam-packed episode. So without further ado, here is Seth Gruber. Well, Seth, thank you so much for joining us today on the Ladies of Life site. We're so thrilled to have you. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Lisa. It's, it's been a long time. We've been in this fight together for, for quite some time, and it's, it's fun to have our, our paths crossed when they do, fighting for life. I know we have. We met at a, a youth event back in Washington State. 
gosh, I don't know how many years ago. But it's amazing to see just the work that you're doing in the pro-life movement now, speaking and educating. And so I wanted to bring you on this podcast today because as we have the conversation of we see what's happening in the world when it comes to the pro-life issue, especially in our country right now, where the pro-life movement is making advances on the legislative side as one of the aspects. We see what's happening in Texas and with the Mississippi case. We've been discussing these on the podcast in a variety of angles and ways. And so I wanted to bring you on today to talk about that and to talk about how do we answer abortion advocates on a variety of their arguments and issues. Um, And so I don't know, Seth, if you want to maybe share, like, what is maybe if you were to look at social media today or this week, you know, what would be kind of one of the main arguments that you might be seeing or hearing right now, whether it's in regard to the Texas heartbeat law or not, but what's kind of the main one that you're you're hearing these days? Firstly, for anyone listening to this show, I'm grateful for, for the moment that we're living in where people are starting to reach their line in the sand and realize that they have to do something and they have to stand. And so if you're listening to this this podcast and whether you're a man or woman and you tune into LifeSite, I want to just encourage your listeners um, Um, to be confident in their position, to be unapologetic in their position. And hopefully in the next few minutes, uh, we can give them some firepower to feel confident in their position, to not feel like they have to back up or stay silent at those Thanksgiving gatherings and those holiday gatherings because oh you can't piss off uncle bob you know you can't bring up abortion with him listen we are on the right side of history i know that's an overused term but we are abortion is wrong for the same reasons that slavery and the holocaust were wrong and i'll unpack those and so i just want your listeners to feel incredibly confident and grounded that they are right something that you're not allowed to claim today in our postmodern relativistic um, leftist idealized utopia, where the only person who's allowed to be right is the liberal regime. But we are right. And it is the minority in most circumstances when there are injustices that tend to be right. It just takes uh, history a long time to self-correct. And so we are right. And it, this, this legislation is right that is saving lives in Texas. It's estimated that between 120 and 150 babies are being saved a day right now, Lisa, in Texas because of this legislation. Is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. Of course, people always say we need an, an abortion ban. Yes, we need an abortion ban. Unfortunately, we have never had the votes to do that, and people aren't quite ready to maybe resort to civil war by banning abortion and then having Biden send in federal troopers to arrest the governor who, who bans abortion. Yes, that is the correct and righteous bill, but listen, we're going to take we can get. We want to save as many babies as we as we can on our way towards total abolition. And the fact that the court continues to allow this to stand and a federal judge just overruled a lower court judge who told Texas that they couldn't enforce the ban is really good news as we head into the Supreme Court decision with the Mississippi case. And so, of course, the left is renting their garments, right, Lisa, because abortion is the greatest sacrament of the religion of secular progressivism. And so nothing animates their their um, movement and their passion for their political project more than when the fictional right to abortion is compromised. You, you will never watch the left lose their ever-loving minds in a more animated and almost cartoonish way than when abortion is compromised. And we can dive into that later if you want as to why, but the, the short answer is because it's actually their greatest sacrament. And so we're not dealing with an alternative politics here, Lisa. We're dealing with an alternative religion. But the thing is, is when you when you compromise the left's greatest sacrament, Lisa, they show their true colors. <laughs> and so right. this gets to your question about 
what are the arguments and what are the talking points and the responses that we're hearing from the left, the abortion industry, the liberal establishment. Okay, but I repeat myself in regards to people exercising democracy, exercising federalism, exercising self-government in Texas, where the people are making their voice heard and their representatives are passing laws that reflect what the people want. It's funny, the left always screams, our democracy is in danger. Well, that's Texas exercising democracy. Suddenly you don't like it when, when the results run, run counter to, to your political goals. And so their nasty true colors are showing, and usually those are the colors of racism, Lisa. Yeah, shocker, the same party who believed that not all humans are persons in 1850 and weaponized their domestic terrorist arm called the KKK also believes today that not all humans are persons and not ironically also has a domestic terrorist arm called Black Lives Matter Incorporated and Antifa to accomplish their political goals as well. And one of the biggest talking points that was coming out from the left when Texas passed their heartbeat bill where it bans abortion when there's a detectable heartbeat at six weeks but allows private citizens to enforce it by filing civil lawsuits against those who uh, arrange, perform, or assist with an abortion was the minority populations, Lisa, they're going to be disproportionately affected because we know that minority populations tend to get a more abortions per capita per their representation in the country than any other racial classes. And that's particularly true, <clears throat> unfortunately, of course, with Black America, which is about 13% of the American public, okay? So that's 6.5% are women. But then are they all of childbearing age? No. So you have about 3% of the American public, Black women of childbearing age, that obtain 37% of the abortions. Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry know this, Lisa. And so when they talk about pro-life laws disproportionately harming Black America, let's translate that euphemistic bigotry into reality, into English. What they're saying is more Black people will be born in Texas. <laughs> more Hispanics will be born in Texas. And this is a really bad thing, apparently, to the left, who always screams about the injustice of of unequal representation and their desire to have a greater representation coming from the minority classes. Well, you know a great way to get a greater representation from the minority classes in America, Lisa? <laughs> Allow more of them to be born. <laughs> Allow them to grow their right. representation and celebrate them as families and parents. You see, so their racist roots are showing they don't really want those people to grow in representation because they know if that happens, their 37% abortions from a 3% of the American public will start to dwindle and be compromised. And that's a lot of money coming from a small racial class in America. And so and that's the number one response I've seen of how, of how upset they've been, is that this will disproportionately harm Black America. You mean that they'll have more babies and they'll probably rise to the occasion and take care of their children? Oh, you assume about Black people that they're not strong enough or have enough dignity to embrace motherhood and fatherhood for the child that they're already a mother or father to in the womb and accomplish everything else as well because they're an image bearer of God with great potential and beauty. Oh, that's what you really mean. Well, why don't you just say your racism? See, so the left, they, they slap the, the, the sticker compassion and science over their bigotry in order to confuse the American public and to keep the Christians and the churches silent. That really leads into a, very, a larger um, point about you know, your your comment about keeping Christians in the churches silent, I think this is really where we see we the need for Christians to rise up and speak and recognize that this isn't an issue that you can sit on the sidelines with. 
when it comes to the Texas heartbeat law, I think it's it's surfacing a lot of typical ab- arguments that we hear from abortion advocates across the board. I thought I would hear, you know, some new arguments or some like, you know, some some new angle from the abortion advocates on on, you know, why they would justify that that this law is wrong. But what I'm learning and what I'm seeing is that we are hearing the same arguments we've heard for years and years and years. But one argument that's actually interesting that and and we kind of talked about this before we started recording. And so, Seth, maybe we should dive into this one. The kind of the, the argument on the life of the mother or harm to the mother's health or the baby's health. And so a lot of what I'm seeing are you know, Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry are are pulling stories of women who have had abortions because even if they were late term abortions, um, because they're saying, well, my child would have had this, you know, they were diagnosed with XYZ uh, health issue or anomaly, and it would have caused harm to my life had I carried this child to term. And so um, abortion was my only option at that moment. And of course, I, there is a difference between t- choosing to take the life of your child through abortion and allowing the doctors to try to save your life and the child's life in the process. I think that's a very these are two different two different angles that we look at here when when people bring this argument. But if you could just break down that argument for us, I know there's kind of a we have to walk backwards through uh, kind of a series of arguments that get us to this point. But you could you break that down for us? So, yeah, the left is very upset because they say women are going to die now in Texas, right? That's that's what you always hear when pro-life legislation gets passed is that the left will say women are going to die now in life-threatening pregnancies at a gestational point in which they can't access abortion in their states. And so now, of course, the, the, the type of legal gymnastics they have to do to pull this argument off is, is, is unparalleled. I mean, it's just ridiculous. You know, any time that a mother will die unless a, an abortion or intervention is performed, th- those procedures have always been allowed. You know, we're not going to make two people die in order to say that we didn't perform an abortion. You, you would d- induce early labor, perform a cesarean section in order to save the mother's life. And that's not an abortion because properly defined abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human being of the unborn child. Abortion advocates have admitted this as well. Go read Abortion Practice by Warren Hearn, where he brutally describes what happens in abortion. He says the, the you know, the, the, the sensations of dismemberment flow through the forceps like an electric current. And so the abortionists and the pro-abortion movement have long admitted that, of course, abortion does intentionally kill something. It kills an innocent human being. But delivering a baby early, right, Lisa, to save mother's life in a life-threatening pregnancy, that's not an abortion, right? You're not intentionally killing the child. What are you intentionally doing? Saving the life of the mother, okay? And intent from a moral and legal perspective is obviously very, very important. If you accidentally trip over my, my foot, Lisa, and you hurl to your death, the Grand Canyon, you know, I'm not going to be charged with homicide. But if I stick my foot out as you're approaching the ledge and you trip over my foot, you know, but what if I said, oh, but but it's same circumstance, judge. Either way, Lisa died. Well, no, in one circumstance, I intended to make it happen. I mean, this is it's it's so obvious. It's it pains me to even have to explain this to the left. But yes, intent matters. And so when mother is going to die in a life threatening pregnancy, 
We don't intend to kill the baby. We intend to save the life of the mother. But thanks to scientific advancements, we are now almost always able to save the life of both mother and child. It's incredible. If you're, if you're a woman listening to this in 2021 America, guess what? You have less fear of losing your life in pregnancy than any other woman in world history. Okay, and we're saving preemies at earlier and earlier stages now as well, which means that oftentimes, even in a life threatening pregnancy for mom, which are very rare, we can get her on bed rest, get her to the gestational point at the furthest gestational point that we think is safe for her and then deliver the baby early and actually save both mother and child. And we're doing this successfully for quite some time now in America. So that's really great news. So, so, but that, that, those are all the things that they refuse to talk about when they, when they make this talking point and argument that women are going to die through life-threatening pregnancies. So firstly, they're talking about uh, 1% or less of abortions that are performed each year that are reported for having been done to save the life of the mother. But then you add on to that everything I just said, which is that actually no abortion is actually never medically necessary to save mom's life. And it's actually safer, Lisa, to induce early labor or perform a cesarean section in a life-threatening pregnancy. It is safer for her body to do that than to get the abortion. And uh, it, this should be kind of like duh and axiomatic. Like, obviously, that's safer than shoving forceps up a woman's birth canal. Like, come on. Like, do I have to explain that to you? You know, but, but of course, we do because abortion is their sacrament. They care about nothing more than they do abortion. And so, therefore, nothing will animate them in their political activism more than when abortion is compromised. So anyways, uh, hopefully that helps. That's how, but that's how they get around that. They ignore the fact that, you know, we have thousands of neonatologists, doctors, medical students, embryologists who have all said, yes, abortion is obviously never medically necessary to save mom's life. But they have to say that because that enables them to veil their position, Lisa, in false compassion. And, and by the way, false compassion undergirds the left's um, position on nearly every one of their policies that they push. They do it through euphemisms and false compassion to make themselves look loving. And nowhere is that obviously more evident than the issue of abortion. And so it's easy to confuse moderates, squishy pro-lifers and moderate pro-choicers into supporting abortion when they can get away with these types of arguments of like, you want to send women to die, Lisa? I thought you were pro-life. So they use the minority to justify their support of the majority, and then they indoctrinate the public into supporting at least some aspects of their regime by saying, well, some women need it. You know, you don't want women unnecessarily dying, but the whole thing is a lie. Absolutely. And I think that when you actually lay it out like that, it's so clear. And I think that's where the the pro-life side of things, we really need to show not only compassion for the situation that the, the woman and the child are in, but help people to understand that, look, science and technology are advanced so much that abortion should not really be an option in this case, because what you're trying to do as the doctor in that situation situation is to save the most amount of life possible. So I love this point that you're making about how abortion is the sacrament of the left. So could you dive in more, dive into that a little bit deeper? Because I think this brings a larger perspective on uh, a lot of the arguments that we hear in the stance of the abortion advocates. But really, I think this is a, a kind of a fundamental piece to understand as a pro-lifer. Uh, so let's dive into that. Well, of course, we're operating off the 
the safe assumption that most of the people who tune into this podcast are Protestants or Catholics or, or Christians. And so, and so therefore I think we need to, we need to view this through the spiritual lens that this battle really does represent. Man is fundamentally a religious being, right? Scripture says eternity is written on the heart of man, which means, right, we come from God, we've been made by God. And so our, our hearts and souls can't help but recognize spiritual realities and pursue religious and spiritual answers and solutions to fundamentally religious questions. So C.S. Lewis says, you've never met a mere mortal, right? So we're all immortal in the sense that we'll either immortally burn in hell or we'll immortally worship Christ in heaven. And so if man is fundamentally a religious being and the gospel and Christianity are true, <clears throat> then our actions in this life are really just revealing of a deeper pursuit and need for peace, and so we all want to live forever, don't we? And you see this throughout human history. Human beings have always tried to find ways to extend their own lives, right? And now you've got Jeff Bezos and these other people who are literally trying to create digital immortality, where we can download essentially the human consciousness or mind and immortalize ourselves forever. And you see this in movies, right? It's, it's wild. But, it, but what's my point? My point is not to talk about whether that's possible or not. My point is to talk about what man pursues. Man pursues to live forever, right? First Corinthians 15 says the last enemy to be defeated is death. And so the left is actually seeking to secure the same thing that all human beings crave, Lisa, and that has actually already been secured for us on Calvary. Death has already been defeated. The fetal deity, the God-man, the greatest unborn child and former fetus to have ever existed, Christ himself, enters human history in a womb that he once knit together to identify with us from our most vulnerable stage, the prenatal stage, in order to redeem mankind from their sins and take the punishment that only he could for our sins. Christ becomes a human being at the moment of conception. And so, and then defeats death on Calvary and says, you can defeat death too. Repent and believe the gospel and you will live forever with me. And so the left is seeking to secure what has already been secured for them, which is to live forever, to defeat death. But rather than accepting the broken body and shed blood of Christ for eternal life, Lisa, the left in the abortion industry demands that we break the bodies and shed the blood of babies for eternal life. What do I mean by this? Well, we do this through embryonic stem cell research, don't we? The left demands that we abort and murder babies in order to get their stem cells, despite the fact that embryonic stem cells, Lisa, are being used to successfully treat zero diseases. That's right, zero diseases. They're, they're, they're far too unreliable, and they have not successfully been used to treat any diseases. However, adult stem cells are currently being used to treat over 75 different ailments and diseases, and that doesn't involve the immorality of killing the person whose stem cells you're harvesting. So we, they demand that we kill babies to get their stem cells to use it to cure diseases and what? And extend our own lives and get rid of diseases. So the baby becomes a sacrifice for man's pursuit of eternal life. We kill babies to get their organs, don't we? This is called fetal tissue harvesting or research, um, which is really just a euphemism for chopping up the children who are killed through an abortion. Fetal organ harvesting, you might call it. Planned Parenthood has long participated in selling the body parts and organs of the children that they already profited off of killing through an abortion to make an additional buck. The FDA was recently exposed by Judicial Watch earlier this year, Lisa, 
the FDA, federal institution, for purchasing 20 to 24-week-old aborted babies from advanced bioscience labs in Northern California, the same lab that was at the heart of the controversy with the Center for Medical Progress exposing Planned Parenthood for selling these baby body parts, oftentimes to that same lab, advanced bioscience resources. FDA was purchasing 20 to 24-week-old aborted babies and requesting them from that lab with the request, quote, fresh and on ice to get the cadavers of those children as fresh as possible. And then they were scalping the heads of those children and inserting them subcutaneously on lab rats to create what we call humanized mice. And then that mice would then grow the infant hair that would have grown on the head of that infant had they not been aborted. So that then the scientists, the scientists, right? You can trust them, follow the science, Lisa, to test solutions to staph infections. So once again, the baby becomes a sacrifice for man's pursuit of eternal life. And scientists are now creating human monkey hybrids, growing them, developing them, and killing them to harvest their organs so that those of us who need organs can get it from the little human monkey hybrids. And life, lastly, in this last, this has all happened in the last eight months, Lisa, the same, some of the same scientists behind the human monkey hybrids are also behind the push for prenatal gene editing past 14 days. So right now there's an unspoken rule that we don't grow human beings artificially in, in petri dishes and in labs past 14 days. But there's no real laws against it. And so scientists are pushing to see how far can we grow a human being, Lisa, in a lab outside of the womb? Because the more we can grow them and develop them, the easier it will be to experiment with gene editing. So you see, if we can edit the baby's genes, Lisa, and experiment on them to try to just get rid of, of, of our proneness to certain diseases or ailments in the gene code, we test it on the baby first, sacrifice their body for what? For man's pursuit of eternal life. And so look, we sacrifice babies in order to secure and pursue the same thing that Christ has already secured and, and procured for us on Calvary, which is to live forever. And so abortion is the greatest sacrament of the religion of secular progressivism because it represents everything they believe. It reminds themselves whose they are and whom they serve, which is Satan himself. We participate in the sacrament of communion, right, Lisa, to remind ourselves whose we are and whom we serve. It, it, it's the gospel on our tongues. It's a living embodiment of the gospel, the broken body and shed blood of Christ poured out for the remission of sins, peace, and eternal life. But not ironically, because it's a spiritual battle, they demand that we actually break the bodies and shed the blood of babies to also pursue eternal life. It's another innocent human being being sacrificed for man's pursuit of eternal life. Peter Kraft put this perfectly. He said that abortion is the demonic parody of the Eucharist. That's why it uses the same holy words. This is my body, but with the opposite blasphemous meaning. And so Christ says, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. The culture of death, Lisa, actually says the same words. This is my body and my choice. And I'll kill whatever's inside of my body because the serpent told me in Genesis 3, ye shall be as gods. Abortion is the ultimate fulfillment of that first lie in the garden, Lisa, where the Satan tells Eve, for God doth know that, that in the day ye eat of that fruit, then your eyes shall be opened. You see, Eve got woke. <laughs> it's the first woke story. Your eyes will be opened. You'll see another way, a better way, my way. God's holding out on you. Eat the fruit and then ye shall be as gods. Well, a God gets to decide who lives and who dies, Lisa. And a God also gets to live forever, which is the ultimate pursuit 
of man's obsession with abortion, which is to live forever and to decide who gets to live and who gets to die. So while the Eucharist represents everything we believe in our faith, abortion rep represents everything they believe in their faith. The baby simply becomes a sacrifice for man's pursuit of eternal life. So from a Christian worldview, we should be trumpeting the fact to the left that, listen, what you're seeking has already been secured for you. Lay aside your demonic obsession with abortion and embrace the broken body and shed blood of Christ already poured out for you for the remission of sins and eternal life. Well, thank you for diving deep into that. I've never actually heard it laid out that way, but it it makes so much sense when you explain it in that capacity. So thank you for explaining that for our listeners and for diving into that perspective, because I do think the pro-life movement, actually, there's a lot of effort from the pro-life movement to talk about abortion from a non-religious perspective, because we want to find common ground with those who, you know, aren't religious at all. And so we want them to, you know, have some common ground and see the the child as a human being and why they should deserve rights like the rest of us. But I I do think for for Christians, it's important for us to understand that and see the spiritual side of it and the spiritual warfare that's raging on in front of us. And we can't ignore that because if we do, we're missing the point. You know, we are totally missing the point. But I want to dive in a little bit deeper to one of the arguments that you sort of ended off with is the this is my body. It's my choice. And and clearly this is the heart of of the abortion advocates sacrament, right, is understanding this is my body. I can do whatever I want with it. And one of the arguments that we're seeing and hearing, you know, we continue to see this and we're hearing it a lot lately, especially after the Texas heartbeat law came to pass is, you know, you pro-lifers, you pro-life legislators, you want to take away a woman's choice from her. So could you just dive into, you know, for those who are listening who don't have a lot of, you know, pro-life apologetics background and are trying to figure out how do I answer people who say that, you know, some some abortion advocate on their Facebook page is saying, you know, this law is taking away women's right to choose. It's her body. You know, how can they convey to these abortion advocates? How can they they answer them well on that. Men are a really great example. Preborn males, baby, right? Lisa, preborn males. Well, if there is such a thing as preborn males, then I guess the body in her body is not her body because pregnant women don't have male genitalia. I mean, it's so ridiculous. I mean, I, we could debunk this in so many different ways, but, you know, even the left won't actually admit that pregnant women have 20 fingers and 20 toes, two brains, two hearts. Two different DNA codes existing simultaneously, and also potentially two different blood types existing simultaneously, Lisa. <laughs> and then, of course, if she's pregnant with a, an unborn male, then I guess she would be two genders existing simultaneously. Of course not. Obviously, the body in her body is not her body. Nobody actually believes that you can do whatever you want with your body by just argue, arguing from bodily autonomy, right? The, the left um, always screams about degenerate men who mistreat women. Amen. Absolutely. Right. I agree with you. Why? Because men it's, do not get to do whatever they want with their body to abuse innocent women. The same thing is true of abortion, right? I mean, abortion is really the, the greatest example of child abuse. It's parents abusing their own children that actually ends in their death. 
the fact that the child is located six inches away in a womb designed to hold them changes nothing in the moral framework of the argument. It's, it's, not, it's not as if it's less wrong to abuse prenatal children than it is to abuse infants who have just escaped the birth canal. The birth canal obviously doesn't confer personhood. It's not like the child suddenly becomes valuable with personhood rights when the fetus fairy sprinkles magical personhood conferring fairy dust <laughs> on them as they exit the birth canal. I mean, this is ridiculous. So obviously it's not just her body. That's the whole point of the pro-life case and the pro-life position is that there's a different body from the moment of conception. There's a distinct living and whole human being. Distinct because you're talking about a separate DNA and potentially separate gender living because they're directing their own internal growth and whole because the child already has everything they need from conception to realize their full growth and development as a participating member of the human species. But the obsession with the, with the bodily autonomy argument, you're right, Lisa, does strike to a deeper truth about what they believe, which is that they shall be as gods, right? That, that ultimately ab abortion is really the deification of the self. I can do whatever I want even if it means killing an innocent human being, because I'm a god, and I, and I get to decide who lives and who dies. But I mean, th those are a few ways you can deal with that with that sort of silly argument. What are your thoughts on the whole shout your abortion thing? I know that's going around quite a bit, and it's not new, but I think it ties in a lot to this conversation and to this idea of abortion being a sacrament. So what are your thoughts on that? It's psychological self-talk. That's what it is. It's psychological self-talk. It's 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 broken and hurting women who are reassuring their consciences, Lisa, that what they did was not just necessary and justified, but it was beautiful. Because if they confront the reality of the decision that they chose, they would be forced to admit that they paid a hitman to kill their child. That's what abortion is at the end of the day, isn't it, Lisa? You're paying a hitman to kill your child. You may not have killed the child. You may not have wielded the forceps, but you paid someone else to do it. And from a moral perspective, that would make you an accomplice to murder. If, if, if a mother paid a neighbor to kill her infant or toddler, everyone would expect her to be treated as an accomplice to murder in a court of law. That reality and coming to terms with that, Lisa, is far too frightening and horrific for most people to entertain in their minds. And of course, this goes right back again to, to, the, to the, the Christian worldview, right? It's like, listen, King David paid someone or arranged the death of an innocent human being. If there's grace for King David, there's grace for you. Abortion is not an unforgivable sin. And Christ is just as eager to forgive the bloodshed of abortion and the sin of abortion as any other sin. So once again, a beautiful opportunity for Christians to remind the culture of death that you can confront the horror of your sin uh, because there's an advocate who pleads your case before the Father. But that, that's ultimately you know, what, what we're dealing with. And so the, this sort of shout your abortion campaign that we've seen, I'm convinced is, and I forgot the name of the woman who started it, but, but we covered it in my podcast a while back because it was so disturbing. You, may, you guys may remember she did an interview with, with children, like 10, 11, and 12 at the time, or actually it might have been like 9, 10, and 11, and asked them what they thought about abortion. And then some of them even had answers along the lines, Lisa, of saying something like, well, it's, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's a baby, you know, it's a, it's a little, it's a little person. And she was like, well, I just find it offensive that you would tell me, you know, what I can or cannot do with my own body. These are like nine-year-olds. Like, this is how sick this woman is. But, but she has to be, right? 
She has to be that sick. She has to tell herself, Lisa, that what she did was beautiful and it was a blessing of liberty to quote our founders, which is really just license and libertinism, not liberty, because confronting the reality of what she did is far too horrific. And so that that is why the pro-life movement and the church needs to be very clear in what we're saying, which is that abortion is genocide. Abortion is the murder of an innocent human being. But there's also one who willingly shed his innocent blood so that you wouldn't have to shed the innocent blood you did to pursue peace. That peace and and justice and and Forgiveness of sins has already been secured for you. Now turn, turn to the unborn child, turn ironically to the womb of Mary, where, where the peace you're seeking has already been provided for you. So not ironically, Lisa, the, the womb has become the most dangerous place for a human being to find themselves in America in 2021 today. However, that location is actually the answer. That's where Christ becomes human. That's where he becomes the God-man to purchase our salvation. And so again, just, just for the believers listening to this podcast, that, you know, there are bigger spiritual realities going on, and, and it, it shouldn't surprise you, therefore, that the very location that our Savior becomes human in to buy back us from the kingdom of darkness is actually become the most contentious and violent place, violent place for a human being to find themselves today. Yeah, and I think this highlights just the reality that we live in a broken world with a lot of broken people. I mean, as you've you've kind of stemmed back from Adam and Eve and the fall of man and sin and how prevalent it still is today. And we still see this underlying current of all of these grave injustices that are happening around us. And abortion is like the, the key central one, because if we're okay with killing innocent children at their most vulnerable stage, then of course we have all of these other issues going on. There's one argument that I saw. I asked a, a group of moms that I'm a part of on Facebook and I asked them, you know, what are some arguments that you're hearing right now that are, you know, that that you're having trouble answering or just that you're seeing? And one of them, and I think this would be a one that we should dive into just a little bit here, just because I think this is a, a common argument, though it's not a common situation, is this argument of, you know, well, if you think, you know, forcing a 13-year-old to birth her, you know, rapist baby is okay, then you're disgusting. Like, these are the arguments that you know, we're getting from abortion advocates out there. And it's, of course, it's not that we aren't compassionate for this woman who might find herself in this horrible situation. But what is kind of your response to something like that, Seth? Yeah, yeah. Isn't it disgusting how they how they invert compassion? Once again, false compassion undergirds nearly the less position on everything that they push. We're accused of not being compassionate and loving because what? Because we don't think that children should be murdered for the crimes of their father, Lisa. Yes, exactly. That's what they're saying, right? They believe that children should be murdered for the crimes of their father, that preborn children who cannot control how they came into the world can be sacrificed, can be murdered, can be dismembered for nothing they've done, but because their father was a degenerate. So I don't think that we should kill Timmy because daddy did something wrong. So I turn that right around on them and expose their false compassion for the bigotry that it is, for the evil that it is. You believe that Timmy should be murdered because daddy sinned then you're the degenerate. You're the evil person. My position is the position of compassion, of justice, of equality. 
that that all human beings are equal in dignity and rights simply because they're human beings, not because of anything that they can do or perform, but simply because of who they are, a human being. And of course, from the Christian perspective, an image bearer of God. But as is common from the left, Lisa, is they appeal to these minority exception cases to justify their support of every case, right, which is intellectually dishonest by sort of any litmus test. And rape is the number one example of how they do that. So according to, I think it was a 2007 report from Guttmacher Institute, and of course, Guttmacher Institute is Planned Parenthood's statistical research branch. Uh, half of a percent of the annual of the abortions in 2007 were performed on women who had been raped, half of, a, of 1%. And so, of course, the first question your listeners can ask those people is, oh, oh, yeah, okay, so I didn't know that that was that was the case that you supported abortion. Okay, awesome, pro-choicer. Hey, will you join me then in fighting to end 99.5% of all other abortions that aren't performed in cases of rape? And of course, the pro-choicer says what? They say no. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're appealing to the exception to argue for the norm. And they say, no, abortion is a woman's right issue. Oh, so then why are you hiding behind rape victims to make yourself look more compassionate? Why are you using rape victims as a human shield to disguise your bigotry, which is that you support abortion in all circumstances, not just the circumstance of rape? So you can ask that question to just expose the fact that, that, that they're just using that to make themselves look more compassionate. Why? Because it's easier to trump up support, right, Lisa, amongst moderates to support abortion if you can justify their support of abortion because of the rape victim, the 13-year-old who was raped. But, but they don't believe that that's the circumstance in which abortion is allowed. They believe it's allowed in all circumstances. But they're using that hard case and that, that, that case that makes himself look more compassionate to justify all abortions. But, but of course, the bottom line and the response of the pro-lifer is that hardship doesn't justify homicide, does it? Hardship right. does not justify homicide. Now, okay, they say, now, let's take it like to their extreme conclusion that they use, Lisa. This 13-year-old, this no, it's an 11-year-old, Lisa. And she just got, she was impregnated by her father through rape. She was then kicked out of the home and is living on the streets and doesn't know where the local foster care system is. And then she finds out she's pregnant. I mean, right, it's like, there's, now, is there an example of this? Of course, somewhere there's an example of this, but right, they, they, they create this like horrific scenario that does not reflect the reality of why the majority of people get abortions today. And then they use that case to make us look like the moral monster for saying that she shouldn't be able to kill the baby. It's disgusting the type of, of, of thought experiments that they come up with for the explicit purpose, Lisa, of making us look like degenerates. Well, really, all they're doing is they're trying to veil their own degeneracy. And so let's say, the, 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 but let's grant their argument, whatever. It's an 11-year-old whose hips are not large enough to give birth yet, right? Then, then she has some disorder that they come up with, and then, the, okay, the 11-year-old's going to die, right? Okay, well, then we're just back to the top of the show, Lisa, life of the mother situations, right? How should right. we deal with a pregnancy where the continuation of the pregnancy will, will likely end the mother's life? Well, you take care of both. You love them both. You treat them both as patients. You take care of them as far along in the gestation and development of the child as possible. And then you deliver the baby early through a cesarean section or inducing early labor to save both mother and child. If you can't, if the child can't develop to the point that they can survive outside the womb and mom's going to die like tomorrow, then you still induce early labor. You give mom and baby as much time together as possible. And if the baby passes because she was not developed enough to survive outside the womb, that's a tragedy that we mourn. 
but it doesn't become a justification for an abortion, which is different than an intervention surgery done to save the life of the mother, blah, blah, blah. Right, right, right. We're right back to the top of the show now. So, so they combine all of their arguments in order to sort of justify their bigotry. But at the end of the day, you don't get to kill Timmy because daddy did something wrong. And here's a last way that you can deal with the rape objection to really, really hit back hard, right? I'm tired of, of, of hard, hard cases from the pro-choice or being pushed onto pro-lifers. How about we start coming up with hard cases and questions for pro-choicers that expose their bigotry? So what do they say, Lisa? They say, well, that baby's gonna look like the rapist. We've all heard that one, right? And, and these, these pro-choicers, they, they even sometimes call the baby like a demon seed. It's really disgusting language and just showing how much they dehumanize the preborn. They say this demon seed is gonna look just like the rapist. And you're, hey, Lisa, you're gonna force that mother to raise a baby that looks just like her rapist. And she's gonna be reminded every day of, of, of the, her rape and the trauma of that injustice because that child will look just like the rapist. Okay, firstly, that's, that's deeply disgusting language because I know women who have had babies conceived in rape and some of them do look like the rapist and they still love that child and are so grateful they chose life. But let's again, just take that argument to its logical conclusion. And let's then ask the pro-choicer this, Hey, pro-choicer, you're right. You're right. Some babies will look like the rapist. And we don't want that, right? But you know what? 50% of babies conceived in rape will probably just look like the mom and won't remind her of the rape at all. And she'll be so grateful that the child looks just like her. So here's what we got to do, pro-choicer. We got to let every baby conceived in rape be born because we don't want to unnecessarily abort certain children who actually look like mom and not like rapists. So, so let's let all babies be born conceived in rape, pro-choice Bob. And then, but you know, facial structures, they take a little bit of time to develop, right? Like a lot of people said, my baby looked like me and then my wife and then me, it kind of goes back and forth. So we really got to give all babies conceived in rape two years after they're born. And then at their second year old birthday, we'll all get together. And as little Timmy is shoving cake in his mouth, we'll all ask the question, does Timmy look like rapist or mother? And if, the, and if Timmy looks like rapist, let's just chop his head off right there while he's eating cake. Because dang it, I'm compassionate, Lisa. I am compassionate. I'm a pro-choicer. I'm compassionate. I love women. And I don't want mothers to raise babies that look like they're rapists and remind them of the rape that they had to undergo. And then if Timmy looks like mom, we'll let him live. Isn't that wonderful, pro-choicer? Don't you just love how compassionate I am? The pro-choicer will probably be vomiting out their lunch and saying how disgusting it is that I would even suggest that. So what's the point, Lisa? The point is, is that they actually don't believe that babies conceived in rape can be killed. They only believe that babies conceived in rape before birth can be killed, right? So now we're really getting down to the bottom roots of their bigotry. Rape is just a, a, an opportunity to veil their bigotry in compassionate language that then can be used to demonize pro-lifers because they don't support killing babies conceived in rape after birth, even if that infant one-year-old or two-year-old looks like rapist, rapist father. They only support killing babies conceived in rape in the womb. So it's not even really about rape at all, is it? It's about the fact that the child is simply unborn and they're treated like property, just like that same party, the Democrat party believed that human beings, some human beings were property not so very long ago. And they come up with the philosophical arguments and bigotry they need to justify their position. But the, at the end of the day, it's the same worldview. It's the worldview that says not all humans are persons. And we as the elite born class who weren't aborted 
we get to come up with the litmus test for personhood. We get to determine who are persons and who are not. And if you don't meet our litmus test for personhood, you're screwed. And usually that litmus test has to do with wantedness. If the baby is not wanted by their mother, it doesn't matter that they're a human being and it doesn't matter how they came into this world. They're unwanted. They're untermensch, to quote the Nazis. They're subhuman. And so therefore they can be killed. So I hope your listeners can understand that and see that, that it's not really even about rape. It's not about any of these quote unquote hard cases. Those just become opportunities for them to make their position look more compassionate and demonize their opponents. Right. And the reality is that abortion is not providing a solution to the woman when she's in this situation, though it's a rare situation. So there's a difference between finding a solution and getting rid of the problem, isn't there? Right. Absolutely. And and oftentimes when, you know, sex traffickers will bring in the women to have the abortion so they can continue their cycle of abuse and Planned Parenthood and abortion facilities are not reporting it. And so this woman's not finding a solution out of this situation. They're just continuing their cycle of abuse for their bottom line. And so when the left shouts, you know, we care about women and it's a woman's body and it's like, well, wait a second, you're bringing this, this, you know, rare situation of rape or incest or harm to the mother's health or life. And yet when we look at the, that as a whole, they're not actually providing a solution. They're just saying, here's a Band-Aid quick fix for, for this awful situation that you found yourself in. And so I think it's important, yeah, for pro-lifers to to express their compassion and understand that actually on the pro-life side of things, we are doing a lot to help give women help and tangible support to help them through all of this. But where's Planned Parenthood? They're just continuing the cycle of abuse. So before we end here, Seth, gosh, we're going to have to have you on the show again because this has just been so such a, a jam-packed episode of such great information. So thank you for being on. But before we end here, I do want to just... we. We talked before the show about kind of giving a call to action to Christians and urging them to get off the sidelines when it comes to the abortion issue. So could you talk about that before we end here? I find it mildly entertaining and also disturbing that for the last year and a half or so, we've had many woke pastors and churches talk about the historic injustice of slavery and the need to rectify our sins and our apathy in regards to slavery and the historical consequences and fallout of slavery and the duty of us as Christians to love our neighbor. And that's why we have to support universal health care. That's why we have to support reparations um, and massively taxing the next generation to make up for crimes that no one alive today and no one's children alive, uh, no one's uh, grandparents alive today experienced. And there's this huge call to love our neighbors and to sacrifice on behalf of those who have been the victims of historical injustices. And there's all, there's a role to play and silence is violence, right, Lisa? And, and, if, and you need to do something and everyone has an individual responsibility to solve and make up for the historical impacts of slavery, blah, 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 blah. And yet these woke pastors and churches, Lisa, do literally nothing to end abortion, most of them. And, and so, you know, this is what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, by the way, Lisa, chronological snobbery. We, we sit on high in 2021 America and we look down our noses at those who allowed slavery and allowed the Holocaust in Germany, allowed child slavery, allowed all these historical injustices. And we humana, 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 and we say, how could those Christians have allowed that? They must have not had a very robust faith. What kind of bigots were they? Why were they allowing the culture to define how they viewed their neighbors and not scripture and not the Lord? <laughs> well, we have our own lynchings today in America. We have our own Holocaust. That's 
called womb lynchings. It's called the abortion holocaust. And it's the greatest holocaust in human history, the greatest genocide in human history. And so if you want to know, Christian, how you would have lived in chattel slavery in 1850 America, if you want to know how you would have lived in 1940s Germany, if you would have been with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you would have been with Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman in America, your answer is, is quite clear and cut. Your answer is whatever you're doing on abortion today. To whatever degree you engage the issue of abortion today is your answer to the degree to which you would have engaged the slavery in America or the Holocaust in Germany. And that's a hard truth for people. That's a pill most pastors, Christians, and Christian workers and leaders are not able to swallow or recognize. But it is true, Lisa, because abortion is wrong for the same reason that abortion, that the Holocaust and slavery were wrong. In one sentence, the government in each circumstance defined which humans were persons and which humans were not persons. And then came up with the functional cognitive ability litmus test for becoming persons and having those rights. And if you didn't meet that litmus test, you were screwed. So the litmus test for personhood in Germany was religion and appearance. The litmus test for personhood in slavery America was skin color and intellect, they argued. And the litmus test for personhood today for the preborn is size, level of development, location, and their dependency. And because the child's smaller, less developed, located in a, in a different environment and more dependent, they're not a person. And then in each circumstance, each of those governments and time periods in history, Lisa, the defenders of those injustices utilized euphemisms to justify the horror of what was really being done. So slavery becomes property rights or job creation. The Holocaust becomes ethnic cleansing and abortion becomes reproductive justice. And because of the power of normalization, people tend to go along to get along. People tend to choose comfort over sacrifice in order to have a more comfortable life. And so when we wonder, how could Christians have stood by and done nothing while Jews were being genocided, while our African brothers and sisters were being whipped with, with nine-tail whips and enslaved, and we were still going to church and worshiping? How, how, what? How could that have happened? Because we love comfort. We don't love liberty. And we're not willing to stand up and fight for liberty on behalf of those who are being denied life and liberty and for the benefit of future generations. And we're seeing that in the last year and a half of the Christians and churches not willing to stand up against the tyranny of COVID stun and all the false data and science being used to push their political project. That's why that's why whatever you do today on abortion is what you have would have done on other historical injustices. And so the call to action is simple. The call to action is live today like you tell me and pontificate in your mind that you would have lived during slavery in the Holocaust. Your, your posterity and your preborn children are being lynched in the womb. And you, Christian, generally are satisfied to maybe go to a pregnancy center banquet once a year. Maybe that. Maybe you give $25 a month to your local pregnancy resource center. Maybe you don't do any of that and you just say you're pro-life occasionally to a friend and that's it. Well, guess what? You would have said in 1850 America, I don't really like slavery. Now let's go out to dinner. That, that's your answer right there as to what you would have done. So we need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. We need to get used to sacrificing because that's actually the greatest adventure, isn't it, Lisa? That's where we actually meet Christ because he shows up. 
He's already outside of these abortion centers. He's already working. He's already burdening the hearts of men and women to not kill their children. And when we show up, everything changes. And this is why 40 Days for Life has found that when Christians are outside of abortion centers praying every day and trying to engage women outside of abortion centers before they kill their children, we've seen an upwards, Lisa, of a 75% no-show for appointments. When Christians show up, when the church shows up, and this is, comes from former abortion workers who leave the industry, and they've told 40 Days for Life and other pro-life groups that, yeah, yeah, when you Christians were out there every day, we'd see 60 to 75% no-show for our abortion appointments. And our response to that, Lisa, should be, oh, shocker, shocker. You're telling me that when the church shows up, Satan sits down? That when the church stands up, Satan sits down? Yes, of course, because we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. Christ chooses to use his people to accomplish his purposes in this world. Christ could have ended... Um, the sl slavery overnight, right? Lisa, he could have ended the Holocaust in a matter of days. He could have ended abortion, but it's been here for 49 years. Why? Is Christ not strong enough? I guess God isn't strong enough, huh? Or he is, but he chooses to work through his people. So when we show up, everything changes because we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so your answer, Christian, as to what you should do is, is simple. Love your neighbor. And the unborn child is the only neighbor that it's legal to kill. There's only one place in America today, Lisa, that we can say the following sentence. We know when and where broken and hurting families are showing up and innocent human beings are scheduled to die. There's only one place that we can say that of, and there's 1,700 of them in America, 1,700 death camps that lynch our neighbors in the womb, and it's defended under the euphemisms of an alternative religion, reproductive justice, reproductive health care, women's equality. Ironically, the child is denied equality and the rights therein. So your answer is to simply love your neighbor, to show up outside of abortion centers, to get trained to do sidewalk counseling, to be trained to be a mentor family for those who choose life, to celebrate them as parents and to throw them baby showers, post-abortion healing and orphan foster care. So as a full-time pro-life speaker, I partner with Love Life, Lisa, out of Charlotte, North Carolina, Love Life. And our, the, our goal is to mobilize a Christian witness outside every abortion center in the country. Every day they're open, offering the hope of the gospel and the help of the local church that would result in an end to abortion and the orphan crisis so that people stop running to abortion centers for hope and they start running to the church of Jesus Christ. The church, Christ's bride, the one who should have never allowed abortion in this country in the first place, Lisa. Why? Because we worship an unborn child. Christ becomes human in Mary's womb, knits himself together in the womb because we're told God knits life together in the womb. The prenatal John the Baptist is doing backflips in the womb when Mary walks into the room pregnant with God, who is at that moment knitting John the Baptist together in the womb as the prenatal God. The incarnation blows our mind every time we talk about it. That's who we worship. That's who we serve. If we as the church who worship an unborn child cannot mobilize to end abortion of children in wombs, who can and who will? Well, the historical answer has always been this. If the church had stood up on, on any given injustice, we could have turned it all around because the church is the only institution that can hold government to account, Lisa. But we have been abdicating our moral and spiritual duty to love our preborn neighbors for comfort so that we can just grow our 401ks and our IRAs and Netflix and chill with our families in the evenings while our neighbors are having their limbs ripped off of their body in many of those same cities that we live. We have been like the Levite and the priest in the parable of the Good Samaritan who walks by on the other side of the road where a bleeding victim is on the side of the road bleeding out. We have driven by on the other side of the road where our unborn neighbors are, are 
are bleeding out and having their limbs ripped off of their body because we're too busy or we're doing more spiritual things. We're headed to church. We're prepping our youth sermon for the following evening. But Christ makes it very clear in, in scripture and to the Israelites who were sacrificing their children to Moloch. He says, I'm tired of your spiritual your spiritual campaigns. I'm tired of your sacrifices. It's disgusting to me. And he says, why? Your hands are filled with blood. You're participating in sacrificing your children to Moloch. So I'm done. I'm out of the building. And in Psalm 106, Lisa, God tells the Israelites, you sacrificed your sons and daughters to demons. The land is desecrated with blood. And so I give you over to be ruled by those who hate you. That's the position we are in today as the church, Lisa. We are being ruled by people who hate the church and hate the preborn. The land is desecrated with blood. We've been walking in it so long, we don't recognize our shoes are soaked in it. And so God would tell us the same thing he told the Israelites. I'm done. I've left the building. You can be ruled by people, by people who hate you. God will not revive this country or pour out his spirit on the church as long as we continue to allow the slaughter of his children. So what can you do, Christian? Go to lovelife.org forward slash America, lovelife.org forward slash America, or, or 40 Days for Life. Get trained and equipped to start getting uncomfortable and getting outside of, of abortion centers and loving on women, celebrating those who choose life, helping mentor those who have had abortion so they can be healed and be the most powerful voice against the culture of death. And lastly, if you want me to bring me in to wake up your church and light a fire under the, the butts of the people at your church, I have a church partner that generously is offering to underwrite all of my costs and honorarium and travel expenses just for people who can't afford those costs to get me into youth groups, faith-based high schools and churches, to, to wake up your people, to equip them and the saints to stand against abortion and finally end this atrocity. So that was a lot, Lisa. I'm sorry for that. But I, I believe that that's the role of the church. That's what we can do. And that's how I, I'm willing to partner and help those listening to the show to actually step up, show up and watch the miracles that God will work through you. Thank you so much for all of that. I think that's so encouraging. It gave me chills when you were talking about a lot of it. So thank you for your time, Seth. Where can people go to listen to your podcast if they want to hear more from you specifically? Or where can they find you maybe on social media? Where can they get connected more on a lot of the knowledge and wisdom that you have? So I have a podcast called Unaborted with Seth Gruber because we're all unaborted, right? Or as Reagan said, I've noticed everyone who's for abortion has already been born. So we're all unaborted human beings. And so you can follow that on iTunes podcast, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, or if you like to watch it, it is a vodcast as well. You can watch it on YouTube. Uh, we do two episodes a week, one with me on Monday and a guest on Thursday. And then we've seen the podcast really blow up in the last year or so. And people are constantly re reaching out for events and also to say, hey, I got involved with sidewalk counseling. I showed up. I'm, I'm starting to get engaged because of this podcast. And so that's really why I do it is to equip and encourage people to stand. And if people want to book me for events, SethGruber.com is my website, SethGruber.com. That church sponsor is only available for those who, who don't have the funds to otherwise fly me out and cover all the travel expenses. But but it's there for people who can't afford those costs because I, this church wants to get me into as many venues as possible to wake people up and get them engaged. Uh, and then I'm on Facebook and Instagram is where I'm the most active. So yeah, I appreciate you, Lisa. appreciate your podcast and your, and your listenership. And I, you know, I think we're living in a propitious moment. I think we all sense that there's a stirring happening in the country. And this is why the left is starting to overplay their hands because they recognize how unpopular they are. We all seen the polling of Biden is the most, most unpopular president in modern American history. 
on every question that was asked, over 50% disapproval ratings of every, every segment. The left knows this. The left knows that there's probably a red wave coming in 2022. And so they're trying to ram through everything they can to, to permanently enshrine their oligarchy before Republicans go to the polls in 2022 for, for Senate and, and House races. And so now's the time to stand, because if we don't stand soon, not only will we never end abortion in this country, Lisa, but we won't be able to engage in a free system that enables us to speak up for the pre-born. In California, Governor Newsom Leamy, where I live, is passing bills to let 12-year-olds to get abortions and charge it to their parents' insurance plans without parental consent or knowledge. Of course, you can't get Advil. You can't get painkillers from your, your junior high school, Lisa, without parental consent or knowledge. But Newsom thinks that you should be able to charge your abortions to your parents' insurance plan without them knowing. They're saying they're passing laws where you can't picket vaccination sites, no picketing or protesting at vaccination sites. Want to know an organization that also provides vaccinations? Planned Parenthood. Newsom knows this, and so they're pushing through bills to, to, to specifically target and attack pro-life sidewalk counselors. If we don't wake up and stand up soon, Lisa, we will be like Canada or worse. In Canada, if you sidewalk counsel outside of Canadian abortion centers on a public sidewalk, you will be arrested and thrown in jail. Okay, This is where we're headed, and if the church and pro-lifers don't stand up soon and get very comfortable with being uncomfortable, abortion will be permanently legalized in this country. And we won't even be able to participate in a free, we the people form of self-government to restore personhood to the pre-born without being thrown in jail. This is what is coming down the pike for the pro-life movement unless we finally stand up. So it's a propitious moment we're living in. This is a Kairos moment. And that means that we all have a role and a duty to stand. I'm here to play my part and equip your people to stand as well. And I appreciate your voice. Thank you so much, Seth. We so appreciate having you on today, all of your time and insight. We're just so grateful for it. And I I got a lot from it, really encouraged. I hope all of our listeners today are feeling so encouraged from it as well. Thank you so much for your time. I highly recommend you guys go to Seth's website, listen to his podcast. If there are specific questions or arguments that you want to you want us to discuss in a future episode with Seth, please email us at ladies at lifesightnews.com. Hope you all have a great week. Thank you so much for tuning in. <laughs>